Welcome back to American Scene. I'm Ben Rosen, and I am happy to be speaking into a microphone again about movies with American in the title and what they have to say about American identity, culture, and values. But I am sad that my co-host Alan Austin is currently not available to join me. In the winter of 2021, we both decided that we needed to hit pause on this, and we did so a bit unceremoniously. Uh, 2022 was a bit of a roller coaster for me, and I wasn't able to prioritize this. And also now Alan and his wife have recently welcomed a beautiful baby into the world. Uh, so I should take a moment to offer a public congratulations to the both of them and a hearty mazel tov. He is obviously incredibly busy with that much more important job, but he has given me his blessing to continue the conversation. We started this podcast three years ago, almost three years ago exactly, and it has been my goal the past few months to bring it back after such a long hiatus, even if I can't do so with the regularity of those first 18 months of the show. I've planned out a number of episode ideas, and I'll make time for them, and I hope to do at least one episode a month and go from there. And what better day to be recording this new episode than on the 4th of July? It's been a wild few years for this country, and that's probably an understatement, and through this and the next couple of episodes, I'm going to be talking about nine movies with American in the title that came out since just just since 2020. After watching them all, I'll hopefully be able to talk a bit about what ideas and topics that, you know, may unify them, what makes these movies from this particular era of American history different than others we've talked about that came out pre-2020. I think the most recent film we covered on this uh, show was American Pickle, which of course was filmed prior to the pandemic, uh, but released in 2020. Uh, but anyway, without further ado, let's get into the first of three films I'll be talking about on this episode. The DA is offering to drop charges the fake volunteers to help care for senior citizens. At Owl Cove, we truly appreciate you being here to help out our seniors. How am I supposed to eat this nasty-ass meatloaf? Psst, Mike, I suggest you say something, you know? Because you're skiing. I'm Argentinian, boludo. If you stick to the program, your time here should be pretty fast and easy. You win that year. Sorry? You really got away with the ladies. The first film on our list is a 2022 film called American Carnage, directed by Diego Halavis and co-written by Diego and Julio Halavis. This movie stars Jorge Lendeborg as JP, Bella Ortiz as Micah, Alan Maldonado as Big Mac, Yumari Morales as Lily, Jenna Ortega, everyone's favorite, uh, as Camilla, Eric Dane as Eddie, and Brett Cullen as Harper Finn. Brief synopsis, after a U.S. governor issues an executive order to arrest the children of undocumented immigrants, the newly detained youth are offered an opportunity to have their charges dropped by volunteering to provide care to the elderly. But, of course, there's something freaky going on at the home for the elderly. Not all is as it seems, and the youths discover a nefarious plot. This is essentially a Latinx get-out, uh, which might spoil a bit of what the twist is, uh, but whereas the Jordan Peele movie stayed grounded with a small cast, interpersonal conflicts uh, to represent broader ideas and commentary on American society, Carnage really goes big. Uh, the commentary is, is there, uh, but it sort of loses the plot, and the comedy that made Get Out work so well feels out of place here. Um, it opens 
on a pretty effective narrated sequence uh, contrasting quintessential American imagery, ideas of uh, ideals of welcoming, of, of support, the pursuit of one's dreams, the, you know, the success of so many uh, uh, Latin American uh, uh, success stories and celebrities and characters. Uh, and then the, the sequence twists into saying we need Mexicans to play the villains in the American narrative with clips from everyone from Fox News and Trump to Biden from the 90s and Kamala Harris's now infamous Do Not Come. Uh, we get a pretty realistic portrait of a working class family. JP is working a fast food job, taking shit from entitled white boys in a fancy car in the drive-thru. Uh, but the environment at the restaurant is supportive. There's some class solidarity here with JP even agreeing to help out his manager uh, because she had something unexpected come up. It's not what you've seen before with a hard-ass manager who craps on JP after he takes an attitude with the white boys, you know? And, and he talks to his single mom on the phone who's working a late shift too. Uh, so again, not something that we, you know, we typically see. After such an amped up opening sequence, the movie lulls you into a false sense of security as JP's younger sister is excited to go to college. JP and a buddy walk home from work smoking a joint. There's some playfulness between JP and Lily, uh, his younger sister, and the family gets together to celebrate Lily. This happy scene erupts in violence out of nowhere, which was one of the only effective jump scares in the movie, really unexpected and hard to watch as the executive order goes into effect and everyone's arrested. Kids in cages with no beds, no real blankets, no comfort, similar to what you might have seen on the news, but definitely glossier. Uh, it, it could have done, gone darker here. Um, but I think the unexpected violence really works because this is a threat that undocumented immigrants face that they could be found and deported without notice. This is where the story starts to lose me because there's a pretty lengthy interrogation montage where we get to know all our main characters, but the violence and the harshness of the previous sequence is completely gone. It's completely absent. The kids act out, they're cracking jokes, they're giving attitude with no threat of punishments. Um, if you've seen, you know, The Town or The Usual Suspects, there are similar, similar interrogation scenes there. But um, that plays to, like, who really holds the power in those uh, films is the characters who are being interrogated. They're getting one over on their interrogators. And that is just obviously not what has been established here. That's obviously not the case. Um, it, it takes also just, like, a little too long to actually get everyone to the elderly care center. And this is where the story really starts to lose itself. Um, the kids aren't allowed to leave the cafeteria during mealtime. One of them goes missing after he attempts to do so, but at night they're allowed to wander the halls fairly easily, even with an ankle monitor. Um, it's supposedly a really like super nice facility, uh, sort of X-Men Mansion-esque, but at some point one of the kids has to wheel in a VCR-DVD combo that he can't figure out how to work. Um, there are no guards Aside from, it seems, like two pretty stupid supervisors, there's no CCTV, uh, nothing. It's, it's really hard to get a handle on what exactly the rules of this facility are, even though some of the rules were established in, like, the walk and talk as the, the kids are being welcomed. It's like, the setup payoff thing is just, like, not really there. Ultimately, JP and the others discover that Eddie, played by Eric Dane, has orchestrated this plan with 
the governor, Harper Finn, to round up undocumented immigrants, transfer them to these elaborate facilities, mutate them to make them old, and then turn them into hamburgers to sell at a popular fast food chain. Because the, the reason that they give in the story is because automation is making the cheap labor that Mexicans once provided obsolete. There's some commentary in there that there's a high population of uh, Latinx immigrants working in meat processing facilities, uh, in agriculture, and fast food. Uh, Latinx immigrants are, are, are feeding America. Now they are literally feeding America. Uh, it, it also seems to accidentally be saying that the American political and corporate system will concoct an elaborate system to eliminate poor people and the undesirable. Like, you know, not to you know put too many of my own politics into this, but, but homelessness could be solved by just literally giving people homes. I know it's, you know, whatever, more complicated than that, but that is the solution, right? Give homeless people homes. Uh, but instead, we spend more money on criminalizing homelessness, clearing tents, or setting up tiny home communities that cost more than it would cost to just give them homes. Medical debt shouldn't be a thing, but the government supports private insurance companies. Rather than investing in the health of historically poor communities, there's an elaborate prison system that disproportionately jails people of color and then makes it incredibly difficult to live a normal life after prison. So the scheme that's revealed in the movie is almost definitely a lot more expensive than the alternative uh, and that i guess is what makes it so american automation could make life better for everyone to give people the opportunities to do things with their lives other than pick food or process meat or work in fast food uh or you know the people in power could view those people as obsolete and therefore expendable the comparison to Get Out is, is pretty obvious, using Latinx bodies for some nefarious purpose to enhance the lives of white people. Um, even the love interest is revealed to be working with the bad guys, same as in uh, Get Out, and it ends on a lighthearted comic moment that, that doesn't seem to take seriously the drama uh, and horror that they just went through. Uh, the, the commentary is there, and it's well-perceived, uh, just poorly articulated, in my opinion. The sheriff is here. I thought you were in the big house. Got out a few hours ago. You want to negotiate, kid? You know exactly who to ask to get what we want. Let's go see your daddy. My daddy don't like surprises. I understand. <laughs> What's wrong? It's Dr. Keats. Can you clean this up? What in God's name possessed him to do this? All right, next up, we have the 2021 film American Siege, directed by Edward Drake, written by Drake and Corey Large, billed as starring Bruce Willis, but he plays a mostly a supporting role. Uh, it stars Rob Goh, Anna Hinman, Trevor Gretzky, Colin Chambers, Timothy Murphy, and Janet Jones. According to IMDb, uh, the synopsis is that an ex-NYPD officer turned sheriff of a small rural Georgia town has to contend with a gang of thieves who have taken a wealthy doctor hostage. 
Willis is the sheriff who's clearly under the thumb of some powerful local business leader who's got his own paramilitary unit. Uh, Willis doesn't really drive the plot. He hangs out outside the hostage situation while the folks in the house work on getting information from their hostage. And one of them tries to get into a big safe door with some mysterious secrets behind it. The thieves, though, aren't actually there to steal anything. One of them is just out of prison and he's already put the plan together with his ex-girlfriend's sister and her boyfriend. Uh, They're there for answers to what happened to the ex-girlfriend, who they know was working with the local leader. So they create the hostage situation to try to capture attention from, I guess, local news or or federal authorities, Uh, but local news never shows up, and the whole setup, the whole way the, the, the story plays out is that the FBI are going to take, like, an hour to show up. So everything plays out uh, before the FBI arrives. Willis actually disappears from the story for a while and ends up working with the hostage takers to take down the local leader and the paramilitary unit once the local leader's whole corrupt scheme is revealed uh, and that they had the ex-girlfriend killed and Willis knew about it. Um, A lot of the story is just waiting for the doctor to spill the beans and for one of the guys in the house to crack open the safe uh, and find an underground drug facility. Uh, As much as I want to, um, we're not here to critique the movie, uh, but it's hard to see through the weak story for the ideas it's putting forward. Um, That Willis's sheriff is is compromised and, and acts essentially as protection for the corrupt leader and his illicit operation for the for the capitalist system, so to speak. Uh, uh, corruption in law enforcement and, and business leadership has been widely reported in the U.S., uh, although perhaps not to the extent of, uh, uh, you know, this that they're controlling regional illicit drug running, um, perhaps not to, to that extent, um, but uh, uh, the, the idea is there. And, and there are at least a couple hostage situations I'm aware of that weren't as much about stealing something as they were about bringing attention to uh, an issue. Uh, There was Eddie Hatcher, who seized a small-town newspaper in the name of Justice for Native Americans, and there was the Good Guys hostage crisis uh, when Vietnamese men staged a robbery at an electronics store demanding a helicopter fly them back to Vietnam. I would rather see movies about both of those stories uh, than this uh, fictional idea, Uh, but in any case, we have the most basic idea of sympathetic criminals, which we've seen in other movies that we've covered, um, and the movie aligns us with the criminals against these these corrupt, powerful forces. So there are some good ideas here, but we've seen this kind of thing in much more entertaining and thoughtful movies like Inside Man. If you, I, gosh, if, if you have not seen Inside Man, I well finish listening to the podcast, but but absolutely go watch Inside Man. It's probably on Netflix. It almost always is. I would love to do a list of American moments for these movies. Uh, I didn't do any for for Carnage. I did list uh, a bunch of them for American Siege, but I don't. I just don't. I don't have Alan here. But for the sake of of uh, consistency with our other episodes, why don't we get into some American moments? You're playing our song. We have. It's just the opening shot right here is uh, the opening shot of of blood on a cotton bulb. Uh, That's a a very powerful image, probably the only powerful image in this movie, Uh, but uh, the movie is starring a bunch of white people, so blood on a cotton bulb, um, okay, Uh, (laughs) kind of. Um, 
contrasts with what that image might historically imply um, or, or connote. Uh, we have a cop at a donut shop. I'm sure cops in other countries enjoy pastries of, of, of some kinds, but um, a, a cop at a donut shop feels incredibly American to me. Um, we have in this movie, not surprisingly that it takes place in Georgia, we have some big fucking trucks. Uh, these are a uniquely American thing. And unfortunately, they keep getting bigger. Um, you don't need it. Trust me. Um, anyway, the, uh, the imagery of Southern poverty set against Southern wealth, that, that's an effective uh, a montage that they have uh, in the film. Um, you have this, this nice car, big white house with a fountain. It looks like it might've been a former plantation. Uh, and then you contrast that with, you know, homes that are, uh, you know, trailer homes or homes in disrepair. Uh, there's some really great stuff there. Um, we have another instance of jurisdictional conflicts. Uh, I can't remember what other movie we talked about this in, but but a character says something like, "Ah, oh, the feds are feds are gonna fuck this up." Um, so I, I love that that I that seems to show up in a lot of uh, these kinds of movies. Um, I don't know if it's specifically American or not, but oh, it's the feds versus the local cops, the the city uh, uh, cops versus the the state police. Um, it's great. Uh, always always like moments like that. Uh, we have a character talking about a constitutional right to exact violence on people in the name of justice. I don't think that's in the Constitution. I'm not a constitutional scholar, but I don't remember that being in there. Um, but perhaps a misreading or, or a misunderstanding of the Constitution is an incredibly American thing. So I'm going to give it to that. Uh, looking back, I also wrote down someone mentioned gay vegans in L.A. I put quotes around that. Um, I don't remember where that would have fit in, in in the context of, of the story. But uh, I guess we see that urban-rural divide there that we've seen in other movies we've covered or kind of the disdain for coastal elites from places in the heartlands. That's definitely an American thing. And, you know, maybe when we talk about things in these movies that have kind of come to the fore over the past few years, as opposed to, uh, you know, some of the movies that came out prior to 2020. Um, maybe we'll see that come up in some other movies. We'll see. And and really, what would a movie in the contemporary South be without neo-Nazi imagery? Great. Uh, that is it for, for American Siege. Uh, that's it. That Those are all of the American moments that I picked out. And we've got one more movie to cover. Football. Yeah, they didn't pick me. I pick you. I pick you too. Kurt Warner. You got the whole package, kid. The world just needs more time to see it. He came up with this whole arena concept. Arena football. It's like a circus. People love the circus. I like the circus. And now the third and final film we're covering in this episode, probably the highest profile film of the nine I'll be talking about over this and the next couple of episodes. It is the 2021 film American Underdog. Directed by John and Andrew Irwin, the faith-based filmmakers behind I Can Only Imagine and Woodlawn, written by John Irwin, 
David Aaron Cohen and John Gunn based on the book All Things Possible by Kurt Warner and Michael Silver. This stars Zachary Levi as Kurt Warner, Anna Paquin, Bruce McGill, Sir Darius Blaine, and briefly, Dennis Quaid. The film is, I assume, a somewhat fictionalized telling of Kurt Warner's inspiring story, going from a grocery store stockboy to a two-time NFL MVP, Super Bowl champion, and Hall of Fame quarterback. The thing that irked me about the movie the most, though, is it never feels like a true underdog story. It doesn't feel like the title fits the story or the character. He never feels like a guy who's always counted out, never given a real shot, that no one believes he can really do it, and he has to go above and beyond to show the folks in charge what he's made of. From the start, he's a hotshot who doesn't like to listen to what the coach says, and when we meet him, he's already on the field. Sure, he's at a smaller school, but he's the quarterback throwing touchdown passes. He's not the guy on the bench, as we've seen in other underdog stories. Levi is actually pretty charming, uh, and the film also works hard to make him not a stereotypical country dude. He doesn't like country music, he can't line dance, he doesn't drink beer, and he gets vulnerable with Anna Paquin's Brenda pretty quickly. Uh, much of the film, it turns out, is about their relationship, and really, Brenda is the more compelling character with so much more to struggle with. Like, maybe the it's, it should have been her story, or I don't know, she's the real underdog. Um, but, but Warner isn't the one living with his parents, caring for a blind son. It's, it's hard to see him as an underdog because we don't know what his ultimate goal is. And the opportunities come to him pretty easily. Sure, he, okay, he doesn't get drafted on day one. He briefly questions it all, whether or not he'll ever get to, to play football, and then immediately gets signed to the Packers. He gets an agent in one phone call. Like, I, I'm there's that scene when he's when he's on the phone with them, and you think, oh, is this going to be like a montage of agents being like, yeah, I don't see it, or or getting rejected one after another after another until finally somebody decides to to give him a chance. But he gets the agent immediately. There's some hesitation, but then he's just like, yeah, we'll give it a shot. Like, he's immediately on fire. He blows it. He shows up to the Packers um, a training camp. I guess I don't. I'm not a sports guy. I, they might have said it in the movie. Anyway, he shows up not knowing the plays and isn't ready to take the field. This this isn't a, a dedicated guy who can't catch a break. An, an underdog doesn't get the wins that Warner does. I don't. I, I don't know how long he's a stock boy. Uh, for I don't think the movie explains uh, just how long he's he's got to like humble himself here uh, or, or how long he actually did in real life. But then Bruce McGill literally just shows up and offers him a chance to play stadium football. He didn't even have to fight for that opportunity. McGill walks in on Warner and Brenda at a restaurant and says, "Hey, I've been looking for you. You should come play for us." Like. It just it just rained down from the sky this opportunity, and what what makes it so much more frustrating uh, is calling him an underdog. Is like here he's got a shot, he refuses the opportunity because he dismisses stadium football as a rodeo. That's not a guy 
who's dedicated to the game and truly loves it. It's not an underdog. And some of what he's facing is self-inflicted. Like there's the sequence when there's the winter storm and the news says, don't leave home. Kurt is like, we're going to drive out anyway. They don't even have enough gas to get where they're going. So Warner desperately runs to get more, leaving Brenda and the kids in the car. I get that it's meant to show the struggle of poverty, despite the fact that they're both working. But because Warner hasn't been taking these other opportunities seriously, the moment doesn't work. It also doesn't work because, like, outside of their parents, where are they? F- their friends? Why, why, why do they have to drive out somewhere and not have another place to say it, it? It really misses the strength of community that is usually shown in these kinds of underdog movies. Throughout this, though, there are glimmers of other themes I can appreciate. Traditional American values in a modern American family, Brenda's son is blind and half Chinese, so you're and, and you're showing a family struggle uh, through an unpredictable disaster like a tornado. That 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 resonates uh, as so much of the country has to figure out how to put themselves back together after something like this, uh, or with medical issues, really without much help. Uh, community can play a factor here, but but there is so much that is. Um, that is just out of their control. And, and this film does show a bit of that, and I appreciate that. But by the end, even getting the Rams offer doesn't feel earned. Without actually proving himself, Dennis Quaid shows up and, and basically tells Warner, I think you're special. So he gets signed. And then when the opportunity to be the quarterback shows up, Warner just tells the coach, I'm ready. And, and, and all that the guy was waiting for was for Warner to truly believe it. So ultimately, I guess it's about faith and believing in oneself, but Warner never really doubted himself. And saying, I'm ready, isn't the same as showing he's ready. And saying, I've waited and I've earned it, which is a a quote, as he's talking to the coach, he's saying, I've waited and I've earned it. That feels more like entitlement. Sure, the Rams were the underdogs, but Warner wasn't. Uh, uh, Sarah Hagi's review for the Globe and Mail uh, articulates all of this much be- Well, I don't say better. Eh, th- their, their review articulates the thing that I'm trying to say here. She writes, Warner is depicted as so singularly focused on becoming an NFL athlete, he almost comes off as selfish and entitled. He doesn't follow directions or listen to his coaches or really anyone in his life, but he is a quote-unquote nice guy, so the audience is supposed to perceive his stubborn attitude as resilience. Audiences are not given a reason as to why he found success as an athlete. Becoming a professional athlete is an extremely rare occurrence and almost nothing is attributed to Warner's actual skill or physical strength. It's just that he didn't give up trying even when he should have. It's never explained how wanting something, but taking a very long time to get it, makes someone an underdog. Very well said. Very well said. Read the full review. Uh, I cut out a couple small little phrases here and there, but that is the section that really hammers home what I'm trying to say and why this film, why this story, or at least the portrayal of Warner's story in this way, rubbed me the wrong way, and I think missed a more effective articulation of an underdog story. I'd love to see a movie called American Underdog that really drove home the sense of feeling counted out, not given 
an opportunity when you legitimately deserved one. There are lots of those stories out there. Warner's isn't that, at least not the way it's shown here, which is too bad. And now, to lighten the mood and have a little fun, let's get into some American moments for American Underdog. You're playing our song. I'm going to have to revisit the movie, maybe, or play a clip uh, uh, from the opening sequence. I think this was right at the beginning of the movie. There was a Reagan coin toss. I can't remember if, if Reagan was was the one tossing the coin. Um, uh, Iowa. Just Iowa. The setting. The state. <laughs> it's, I feel like, the... I don't know, is it is it the quintessential American state? Like, if you went to another country and you're like, oh, well, yeah, I'm from the middle of the country, you've probably never heard of it, they would say Iowa, maybe. Uh, oh, we have another big-ass truck, not surprising at all, like, massive. I, I, I think I should, I should tweet out an image or, or put this in our Instagram or something, but the truck he drives is fucking huge. Uh, we have a Wheaties box, um, possibly the first Wheaties box we've seen, in one of the movies we've covered, so that's cool. Wheaties, classic, classic. I, I love when Bruce McGill shows up. He, I, I wrote him down as an American moment. He just feels like he shows up in a lot of great American movies. You've got like the political ones. You've got Lincoln, W, Recount, all about presidents or presidential elections. So that's kind of wild that he's in all three of those. He's in The Insider, Courage Under Fire, some great sports movies like Ollie and Cinderella Man, and he's in a couple of movies we might cover for this podcast uh, called uh, FDR, American Badass, which I can't wait to do, uh, and American Fork. This last part is, is typically a lot more fun, getting to bounce around some jokes about our American moments and any final thoughts with Alan. Of, you know, I'd really hope that he gets to watch these movies at some point. I, I can't recommend them to him or to anyone, really. I We were talking about American Underdog, and he was like, yeah, I know this story. I don't really have any interest in <laughs> watching the movie. Um, but but I hope I hope that he checks them out so that maybe we can do a mini-sode later on. I hope we'll be able to get him back on for some of the more high-profile titles sometime down the line as well. We've got so much more to cover outside of these nine, these, these three movies, and then the next uh, six that I'll be covering from just the past couple of years. But for now... That's a wrap on three films, American Carnage, American Siege, and American Underdog. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Leave a positive review. You can give us your unfiltered opinion on Twitter, uh, if you're still using it, at AmericanScene underscore. And if you'd like to follow uh, this patriotic co-host, I'm Ben Rosen, on Twitter at NotThatBenRosen. And we'll see you next time. (laughs) 